Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Today we're discussing tech diversity, inclusion, accessibility. So this conversation is recorded, and it will be later distributed for podcasts for those who aren't available to tune in right now. And I'm pleased to welcome Dominica and Jean, and hopefully we have a few folks who'll be joining us soon as well. Just to chat a little bit about what we're facing, and we're not pretending to be experts, but I think it's a way just to open up and ask questions and share our thoughts for where we are. And obviously there will be an opportunity for folks to be able to raise their hands. So feel free to raise your hands. Members of the Southeast Asia Tech Club do get a priority, as you can guess. So feel free to follow and subscribe to more events like this. And in the meanwhile, feel free to raise your hands and I'll take a note of the order and then I'll be happy to uh, invite you for questions. Dominica and Jean, would you like to just quickly just introduce yourselves real quick for, the, for everybody? Happy to. Hi all, um, I'm Domenica. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a Singapore-based startup called Telelay. We are on a mission to close the telecommunication and the digital communication accessibility gap for deaf and hard and hearing individuals living across Asia, building on providing that access inclusion for persons with all disabilities. In addition to that, I do disability advocacy um, more broadly based in Australia. You could probably tell from my accent, I'm an Aussie. So I do work uh, with the government and the professional associations here in Australia on projects that are related to using technology and innovation to drive sector transformation in Australia. Outside of that, I have a, a few different hobbies. I do writing, I write a lot, and I'm generally involved in, in things that are about social change and health and healing and, and wellness and goodness. So I'm very excited to be here um, and talking about this topic. It's something I'm very passionate about, obviously, with the work that I do, um, and I'm so excited to be bringing um, you know, this topic uh, you know, of attention to, to this audience and to the tech community in Southeast Asia. So. Um, thanks, guys, and I'm Domenica, and I'm done speaking. Hey, guys, my name is Jean. I just founded a merger of spirituality and technology that's based in the Philippines. And what we're trying to do is we are trying to create a platform that will enable people from all over the world to, to have access to ancient healing modalities of the ancient philosophies and the future forward technologies and innovation of AI, machine learning and data science so that people from any background, any gender, any kind of economic status can hop on the bandwagon and be prepared for the future of work and upgrade their lives, whether it's spiritually or economically or technologically. I'm a speaker at tech events. I, I feel strongly about just parity between men and women and and again especially the asian talent i am all about uplifting and just introducing the asian talent i used to run a, a silicon valley based company that created virtual assistants that help people pick financial products i'm also very passionate about ai and I'm in the process of permanently living in Japan, so I'm moving into an AI. I'm gonna I'm going to help an AI company there just create 
build more AI products. So I'm very passionate about technology and spirituality, which is a very, very odd combination. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear about the thoughts of Dominica and uh, Jeremy and, and all of you to just get to know how we can come together to, to help each other out in, in any way that we can. Awesome. And Danny, you want to introduce yourself? I just take the opportunity to invite you up stage. Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm a sign language interpreter in Singapore. I am an accessibility advocate as well. I want to thank Dominica for bringing me up. She and I have just started working on working together with Telele. I have been an interpreter in Singapore for the past two years-ish. And I've also used to work in the government agencies for a couple of months for an internship for uh, accessible public service broadcasting. So I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. This is Daniel and Dan speaking. Awesome. So, and for myself, you know, I'm very much here in the role as a facilitator and moderator. Uh, obviously, I've had past experience as a social entrepreneur, working with, you know, hundreds of nonprofit and social enterprises and from a consulting perspective, but also obviously, <laughs> interestingly, building it itself as a charitable organization itself. And uh, very much, of course, transitioning to VC and um, the various uh, challenges that exist both as a founder and as a VC. So definitely seen, uh, I guess, all three sides of the table. So I think just to kind of get things started, just like, <laughs> what are the problems? You know, what's the problem here? Like, I mean, you know, obviously a strong man argument here, but what's, is there a tech diversity problem, inclusion problem, accessibility? Like, how do we think about what the problems are? I am happy to go first. <laughs> Whilst there are many, for me, I would say awareness is a really big issue, um, especially for what I advocate for. Disability in general in Asia comes up against several barriers. Some of them are cultural, some of them are historical, some of them are political, some of them are technological. There are various challenges and barriers and that's fine because they exist everywhere and across any sort of intersection where there's a need for, for change. But where I see a lack is in awareness. Awareness in a, a societal sense in terms of having social conscious of people with disabilities, the challenges and barriers that they do face and the role that community can play in mitigating those barriers and becoming allies and supporters of those communities. And I say that because kind of globally, there's a shift specifically, and I just centre on people with disabilities because that's obviously my background. There's a shift globally towards acknowledging, for example, that society that disables people because we haven't designed systems and institutions that are inclusive and accessible for people with disabilities. And I would expound upon that and say that that type of discrimination does happen across each intersection. So that can extend into sexual preference. Sometimes that, you know, well, not sometimes it can extend into gender, it can extend into race and ethnicity, etc. And I think there's a general lack of awareness around those social power structures and the ways that they can create accessibility and inclusion barriers for all diverse people. That's not a phenomena that's exclusive to Asia at all. That is a global phenomena. But I would say awareness about this is a different scale to what I've experienced in Australia, for example, or some more mature regions as well. And again, that's understandable and expected. But for me, awareness seems to be a very big barrier. It means that there's a lot of ground-up education that needs to take place, and that can often take a lot of time. And the reality is 
particularly with the increase of digital communication, there's some very urgent needs to attend to some real significant needs that create barriers that literally hinder people's humans, human rights. So they're, they're very urgent sort of impacts that need to be tended to. So that's my perspective. That's certainly a big challenge that I work through in my work on a daily basis. So it's certainly something that keeps me up at night. I'm Domenica and I'm done speaking. Jean, then Daniel. Yeah, I, I agree with what Domenica said. I, you know, everything that she said just resonated with me. I, I see that almost every day in across countries and regions and companies and cultures. And to add to that, I think that openness within, within the mindset and the priorities of corporations and organizations, I think there's a lack of openness in experimenting and exploring the talents and the potentials that other genders or other cultures or other educational backgrounds or even professional experiences. I think there's a big gap within that just openness within the organizations. And then as far as the individuals, as far as the professionals and the very people who are curious about either joining the technology space or shifting careers or just jumping into something new so that they can be prepared for the big technological world or whatever or wherever we are heading into as a, as a species as a as an industry i think the lack of awareness on the individual level i think the lack of awareness in their opportunities to learn something new or to shift careers and just the courage to start talking to people and networking and and actually getting their feet wet. So for example, I come from a very low tech background, but I'm now swimming in the big sea of AI. And I just started recently. So I think that the amount of courage within the individuals have to be nurtured. And so I don't see this as a as like a, a problem of nations only or the government or organizations or within the individual level. I think it's a holistic problem that that is fortunately something that we can all address together. Hi, this is Daniel speaking. Thanks for that. I totally agree with the two of you, right? Accessibility is not something that everybody thinks about. I think one of the main societal issues is that awareness always falls on the disabled people or people who work with people with disabilities to educate the public from people from employers to developers to who, you know, content creators to everybody on here, right? What are we doing to make sure that our content or our things that we develop is accessible to everyone, right? For people who are uh, have low vision, for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, to even people that do create uh, stuff, right? You, you design a website, when you design a product or you start a service, are you doing anything to make it more accessible in the individual level? And of course, also in the more systemic issues and even go all the way up to legislative work. I think Dominica will also talk a little bit about this later about how accessibility is not always a standard all over the world. I think we can even start talking about the different countries, for example, in Singapore. Accessibility isn't a right and it's not something that is mandatory in Singapore. For example, a deaf person can attend a school or attend a course and pay way more than whatever they paid for the course fees for access. I've personally seen such things as well in Singapore. But on the other hand, when you look at places like America or Australia, 
it is all fronted and the responsibilities don't fall on the persons with disabilities themselves. They fall on either the organizations, the school, the institutions, or the government even pays for that. So there's still so much to do. And if you really think of the question, are we there yet? We are definitely not. And I still think that we have a lot of work to do in that space. Yeah, um, this is Daniel Abdan speaking. Thanks. There's something that's a lot of truth there, right? Which is about, talked about diversity, we talked about inclusion, we talked about accessibility, uh, we talked about class, we talked about gender, we talked about nationality, we talked about ability and handicaps and accessibility in that context. Why and how is it different in Southeast Asia versus the world? Because I open up Forbes, right, or Fortune, or New York Times, and obviously I'm consuming all this content around the need for diversity, inclusion, accessibility. But how is that story, you know, the American view of what we consume in the media, how is that different from the reality of Southeast Asia? How is that different? I'd love to hear from Jean and Daniel if you'd like to comment. I think it has a lot to do with the with the cultural and historical roots of of the regions. Speaking as a Filipino, the nation has been conquered for centuries by by several countries historically and so the mindset in general we're a small nation, we cannot do this. There's there's a very restrictive connotation and mindset that has trickled on to the current generation. Although that's already starting to shift, there's still a lot of work to do there. This just, it, it starts on individual level as far as how they're educated, how they were brought up. So depending on the economical class, depending on the educational background that individuals are given. But as far as the American mindset is concerned, having worked within that space for a long time, I see that, and, and I'm not even speaking about the historical background of the U.S., it's just a completely opposite polarity as far as the mindset. Americans think that you can shoot for the moon or the stars, which is very far from what traditionally Filipinos think. And so I think that that is on the surface one of the biggest barriers to why accessibility is not something that's comfortably tackled within this space or area of the region. Jane really kind of laments the point of the kind of foundation from which, well, the foundation at an ideological standpoint, and that's influenced by culture and beliefs and history and a variety of things. And then that manifests at a policy level. And what we see traditionally at a policy level is that sort of ideological, all those ideological views, they manifest through policy. And I can give you one example in disability, for instance, where globally there is the UN Convention of Human Rights of Persons with a Disability, and that that's at a UN level. A significant amount of countries have ratified that declaration. Singapore is one of those countries. Many countries throughout Asia have also ratified that. Within the articles within that declaration, there are certain standards or agreements 
that are outlined that each country who's ratified is essentially saying we would adhere to to deliver some action on. Accessibility, for example, I think is Article 9 off the top of my head. It kind of outlines or defines that the state is responsible for accessibility because the declaration acknowledges that it is society that disables people and therefore the responsibility lands on the state to fix that issue because it's a breach of human rights. So when that's ratified, there's a, a sort of agreement that that's going to take place. But of course, there's, there's nothing to in, enforce that. And the only thing that does sort of enforce that in and I guess turn that uh, into action comes back to what those cultural priorities are um, and ideologies, what have you. And there there is a trend for all the reasons that Jean mentioned as to why you don't see that that type of progress take place throughout Asia. Again, I can only speak for disability. There are examples throughout some regions, some countries across Asia where disability is viewed as even being possessed by like a spirit, for example. And that can all have an impact on what then happens at a policy level and more broadly on a societal level. And so there's a lot of that and a lot of remnants of that still in policy that is working to be, I guess, dismantled here and now. But there is a lot of work to be done to dismantle a lot of that ideology from policy and then to sort of shape the governance for each sort of country that then trickles down into society and and enables society to become more consciously aware. Again, I use the example of disability, but similar comparisons can be drawn where there are gender inequalities, where there are inequalities for sexual orientation, etc. Again, it comes down to all those foundational things that Jean mentioned about culture and, and ideology. So I'm Domenica and I'm, I'm done speaking. I'd like to welcome Haley as well. She's actually one of the speakers here. She also represents a company and startup that's tackling diversity representation in Southeast Asia. So would you like to introduce yourself, Haley? Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for the invite. I wasn't actually planning on speaking, but Definitely happy to take the opportunity. Uh, so my name is Haley Baker, and I'm the founder of a company called Diversely.io. I have a background in, in engineering and in financial services, but actually made the leap uh, to set up a tech platform to help companies increase the diversity of their employees through the hiring process. I have worked in this space uh, informally and formally across Europe and Southeast Asia, and I definitely do see significant differences in the way that companies approach diversity and the aspects of diversity that they're open to talk about, but also prioritize. So speaking more on the kind of outward trends to diversity, for instance, or when we're speaking about what you see at the start, like gender, ethnicity, and age, and these kind of things, but even things like disability, uh, to your example earlier, is we find that in Southeast Asia, a lot of companies and people are very open to speak about gender. And I mean, Singapore has now launched the Year of Women. Uh, so that's great to see. But but the other types of diversity are definitely not at that same level of maturity, whereas obviously given Black Lives Matters and similar trends in Europe, race has come to the forefront. And I think in Asia, there's still this sense that, oh, no, but that doesn't really apply here. Whereas if you look at individual country levels, while there isn't one uniform race that is underrepresented or a minority or facing challenges, in every country, there are those groups that we need to start looking at. 
And similarly, I think age is an important element to consider where everyone's going to be old at some point in time. It's a type of almost bias and discrimination that anyone will or could face in their life. And I think it's one that there's very, very little awareness for across this region as well. Wow, thanks for that. So let me just paraphrase that. So what I'm hearing is that the differences between what you may read in the news about diversity and inclusion accessibility is that firstly, you know, Southeast Asia does have a history of colonialism and that's obviously not uncommon across the world in many places, but is unique in the sense that it's not necessarily represented or spoken from a first-person perspective in the Western media perspective. For example, you know, the BBC can talk about colonialism, but it's a very different perspective from the, the Philippines or Singapore or India. And of course, the second layer that we're talking about, of course, is that different countries have different layers of understandings and prioritization of the definition of human rights as defined by the UN or defined by you know, popular culture in different countries. And of course, Haley is talking a little bit is about there's actually differing levels of understanding and acceptance of different types of diversity and inclusion accessibility, right? So um, it's kind of like, gets kind of like niche as it goes. And I think also one thing I like to pick up on as well, and I think we kind of like kind of hint around a little about it, but also like Southeast Asia is not one country, right? You know, it's it's a lot of different countries, with a lot of different cultures, with a lot of different history and interaction moments. And so that causes this dynamic where someone can be a majority in one country and can be a minority in another country, right? And so to some extent, I think in Southeast Asia, the definition of majority is often like defined by which country or which geography or which vertical we're looking at. And so that tends to like as a result, I think when you say diversity and inclusion accessibility in America, then I think it's often coded to be like, okay, we need more representation in certain genders, we need more representation in different cultures, right? Whereas that's not so true at the aggregate Southeast Asia level. What do you all think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great summary, Jeremy, and I definitely agree. I do think globally when we talk about diversity, inclusion and accessibility, I think it is still a topic that we're unpacking and understanding as a collective. And I do think there's opportunities to deepen our understanding and awareness around what diversity, inclusion and accessibility really means. And I think that's taking place. But I do think, you know, it is safe to say that, you know, as as we've highlighted, each country and region are at very different places. But as much as there's that disparity and fragmentation, I also think that offers a really big opportunity, you know, and even to align some standards globally and to to build our knowledge and understanding around what diversity, what inclusion and accessibility really means. So I just wanted to build on that, that as much as there's that landscape, I think that also presents a really big opportunity. I'm Domenica, I'm done speaking. Yeah, and and if I may just jump in there, I think when you're speaking about localizing diversity and inclusion, I think it's really important to be mindful of where a country or an industry is in terms of their maturity across that journey, because it's always a very difficult topic to navigate. And I think we need to be aware not to push to get everyone at the same level too fast. And this is something that I see in a lot of conversations with companies across the globe. 
is that if you push too fast and you want everyone to get to one level of understanding and priorities, a lot of companies or, or countries might just drop out. So we're not ready. We're not culturally, socially, politically, organizationally. We're not there yet. So we're just not going to proceed. So I think localizing not only on what are the types of diversity that we're open to and sexual orientation might not be something that everyone's open to everywhere at the same time, but also what does diversity for of gender mean? Is it just male, female? Do we consider gender fluid as an option, you know? And if we push some places too hard, we might just lose them. And I think it's important to keep everyone moving forward at least. Hi, this is Daniel. Uh, thanks so much, Haley. I really want to bring a great point to that actually that not every country goes at the same speed, right? Some have to go slower, some are way more accessible than other countries. For example, the countries that we've mentioned earlier. I think one thing that's also really important is that we can look at other countries and use that as a model for what our country is working on. For example, in uh, diversity and inclusion, like looking at the laws in Australia and seeing how that can be maybe modified or you know adapted to fit the, the landscape that is in Southeast Asia. I think you, you may have seen a lot of like, legislative work and like, policies that are way more advanced in other countries than countries in Southeast Asia, for example. And I think even both at the policy level and the legislative level, and in like more of like the companies and like you know all the different employers and and whatever their mindsets are as well, other countries are way more ahead and and some of them are way behind, especially in Southeast Asia. I think Southeast Asia need to work on a lot of things in terms of legislative work as well as attitude and mindsets on an individual level as well. Yeah, thanks. This is Daniel. And I'm done speaking. Yeah, I wanted to echo the what you know one of the things that Domenica said about the level of understanding of. The different nations. So as far as diversity, just like just exactly what we're talking about. So it's in human rights, for example, it, it has a different meaning when we think about the Philippines versus Singapore versus the U.S. So as an example, I was made aware of a recent job interview where the company was taking active, tangible, practical steps towards um, hiring other genders or other educational backgrounds or just just really incorporating the whole diverse mindset. But the questions being asked to the candidate were actually more discriminatory. So the organization was coming from a good place where they really want to find and capture the talent. But because of their current understanding of whether it's diversity or accessibility or inclusion, it's not putting them in a place where they're asking the right questions and looking at the right places for the talent that they're looking for. So I like that Domenica pointed that out. Yeah, I think it's really about something here, right? Which is about speed, it's about the ability to manage change and to articulate that. And it's both at a country level, is a cultural level, but also is at the company level and the individual level as well. So I think obviously we've been talking at a very macro level, right? We've been talking as if you know the way New York Times would write about diversity, inclusion, accessibility. But let's get a little bit more, you know, specific. And when we think about technology in Southeast Asia, so what are the challenges that we think are priorities for employers to be thinking about and be mindful of in this sphere? 
When it comes to tech and diversity inclusion, there are a couple of trends that I definitely always see is on the one hand, can we use tech to reduce human biases in, for instance, the hiring process as one example, but at the same time, be aware, are we introducing new biases through the tech that we use? And and one clear area where you see this a lot is in terms of assessments and selection of applicants throughout the process. And a lot of people these days in the tech industry are using coding assignments, but even across other industries, we're seeing increasingly assessments, psychometric or other being used. And on the one hand, that's great because we get an objective scoring that isn't based on a human judgment. But at the same time, we need to be really mindful of whether these assessments are actually reflecting what defines a successful applicant or candidate for a job, or whether there's no inherent bias that's been incorporated in setting up those assessments in the first place. So this is an area that I'm definitely really fascinated by. And a lot of companies are working across kind of that hiring pipeline and always weighing a balance between removing the human biases that we're generally come to a consensus that exists uh, and that even as many unconscious bias trainings that we throw at it will not be eliminated, but ensuring that we do put the right tech in place to to resolve that rather than to uh, worsen the issues that we're seeing. Dominica? Yes, I guess, again, coming from a disability lens, which is the space that I I work and advocate in, pertaining to Southeast Asia, I can give you an example um, for the deaf and hard of hearing community, which is where we specifically focus at the moment at Telelay. So 44 of the 48 countries in Asia don't have any telecommunication relay services for deaf and hard of hearing people. And that's a range of different um, technology and human supports that provide, you know, accessibility for people who are deaf or hard of hearing and would like to make phone calls. And that extends into accessibility solutions um, for digital communications as well. Obviously, that's a major barrier. I think that goes without saying. That mitigates their ability in many ways to participate socially, economically and politically. Daniel mentioned earlier one of the biggest challenges and, and problems really is that an issue like that tends to fall on the individual who has the disability. As we've highlighted, there's a need for the whole ecosystem to play a role. It's not up to that that individual. So I guess people who are deaf and hard of hearing have to navigate a lack of technical functionalities that support them to be able to communicate via telecommunication or digital communication. The access to the accessibility supports that require human touch often aren't available and that blending of of those types of supports um, or augmentation of those types of human accessibility supports coupled with technology isn't there. And the reason why I point that out is because often when companies or government do try to solve this problem, there's just the emphasis on just the technology being the solution, whereas we know that the problem needs to be solved how the problem needs to be solved. And at the moment, technology on its own isn't always the solution. So again, that comes down to that awareness. And I think 
that's where the lack of inclusion comes into it because what that signals to me is a lack of inclusion in the design of products and services that are designed for people. So specifically technology in this example, there's a lack of inclusion and diversity in the thinking and designing and problem solving stages. And that results in gaps much later on that don't become, you know, a priority once a company or product or service may be scaling and focusing on other areas of interest. Whereas really this needs to be something that's embedded into the core design to begin with so that risk having that lack of inclusion and accessibility from the get-go. I can use Clubhouse as an example, right? When Clubhouse launched, it wasn't accessible for people who were deaf and hard of hearing. In many ways, I understand there are still challenges and barriers for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. I do think Clubhouse has probably been a bit more responsive. There may be some other solutions that I've, I've seen kind of scale and grow as fast as Clubhouse has. But I, I think that that is just reflective of, of the comments that I'm making that earlier on these things need to be sort of thought of in, and included much sooner rather than later because then we see that it, it sort of gets left out. Again, for me, it's about the awareness and I think it, it also then comes down to having a social conscience, Jeremy. Really, what is the impact of an organisation? If it doesn't centre around inclusion of all members of society, then, I mean, what are we here for? at the end of the day. So that, that's my two cents on that. I'm Domenica and I'm done speaking. Hi, this is Daniel. Thanks a lot, Dominica. I think you bring up a really great point. Having technology isn't always the solution for people that are deaf or disabled. I think it's very important for everybody to take note of the sensitivities of the disabled community and also be aware. I think what's really important also is that we start to include deaf and disabled people in the designing and the development of products and services as well as processes. I think one really good example I can think of right now is the development of sign language recognition gloves, right? I think you may have seen them on Facebook where maybe some project from a university in America of somebody designing gloves that can recognize sign language alphabets. And everybody's probably like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Like, why don't we put money into that and develop that more? But also think of it in the other perspective. As a deaf person, would you want to be imposed by the hearing community to like wear these ridiculous gloves? Other than that, of course, it doesn't take into account the other aspects of sign language, right? Sign language also incorporates facial expressions and other non-manual markers. It's a really complex language and gloves themselves don't are unable to solve the real root of the problem, which is that accessibility isn't there. For example, why would you want to use these gloves instead of hiring an interpreter? Also looking at, you know, computer-assisted or AI-generated uh, live captions. You may have seen recently YouTube, and a couple months ago, has stripped all the community-contributed captions on YouTube, and they all default and into auto-generated captions. And these captions also censor bad words. And that's not, at any level, a form of decent accessibility for people with, who are deaf or hard of hearing. And you're looking at other countries, like I mentioned earlier, what other technologies, what other like solutions there is, right? There's so much more things we can focus on, like uh, there's so many more like solutions that we could use, right? 
right, for live captioning, for example, in the BBC since 2001 have been using this thing called re-speaking for live captioning for the television and their broadcasting services. They re-speaking is where a re-speaker would train their voice to a computer where the computer will only recognize his or her voice and the guy would just listen to the program and re-speak it in a robotic voice so that the computer can recognize it. And that makes such accurate captions. And I think the main point is that we have to start thinking or be more sensitive to the deaf and disabled communities, be educated in all these different solutions and how to make uh, your work and processes and products and design and products and services more accessible. I'm thinking from a from a recruitment perspective. I love what Daniel Haley and Domenica all, all said about all the different angles and aspects of of the business and I guess the human mind also. It reminded me of how I've always wished for three things. So I wish that organizations will adopt technology more and more because even within this explosion of innovation in a lot of companies around the world not just in the u.s but even in southeast asia in in the middle of all of this explosive technology and innovation there's still a lot of them that still far behind from joining the bandwagon of whether it's automation or using all of these smart technologies or AI, machine learning, whatever it is, there's still a very good handful of them that have not even scratched the surface or have not even explored adopting these so that they can enable their existing talent or hire more diversely, more inclusively, and more accessibly hire more people, whether it's from various genders or culture, ethnicities, or, or abilities. So I wish there's there's more of that within the organizations and companies that are hiring or maybe transforming their culture within the workspace. And then the second thing that I am really hoping would start to happen, I think it's already starting to happen, is, is that universal approach and mindset to, to looking at the workforce, the talent, the workplace. What do I mean by that? Very often, when people or organizations hire talents, they, they think monotonously where we're hiring a software engineer, it's probably going to be a guy. Or we're hiring a, I don't know, a HR manager maybe, we're hiring a woman. It's, it's, there's that nonverbal kind of, bias, prejudice, expectation, maybe we can call it whatever. But if we if we adopt a more universal approach to that, where we can look beyond the physical and just look at the, the mind of the person, of the potential candidate and the heart, we can find the talent and then get our resources going so that we can hire them and make the workplace accessible, whether it's spending more money on, on these devices that can help deaf talents or, or anyone instead of finding someone but then seeing a disability as a hindrance to, to hiring them. That's my take on that. If I may just jump in on that, I loved how all the points that you just described are part of what we're trying to address at Diversely. <laughs> and to your point around kind of thinking stereotypically, what you see in most organizations is that they do look to hire someone based on what they think a person in that role would look like. 
And what they base that on a lot of the times is based on what the current people who are in that role look like. So to your point, if they're hiring a, a software engineer, they will look around at the software engineers they have around them. And we not only conclude on things on, is it a man? Is he a, a young man? You know, all those kind of things, but also at oftentimes the personality types that someone has. And, and that applies to all kinds of roles. And, and those are exactly the biases that need to be addressed. And some of those that we're using technology to do that is starts even with the language that you use when you speak about your role. We find a lot of young tech companies, they'll put in their job description things like how cool they are and that a grab a beer on a Friday kind of culture and all kinds of these phrases that I don't think they're even aware that they're using that actually might not appeal to the broadest audience and probably might even deter underrepresented groups for them, whether that's women or older people or people with children who go, oh, I'm not sure if I'll fit in with that culture of that company. And therefore, they'll continue to attract the same kind of people continuously. So I think language is something and, and it's also about a mindset, but it's something that we can and we have developed tools that can help create an awareness for what kind of language you're putting out into the world and what kind of people that might attract. And to your second point around finding that talent pool, and I find Clubhouse is a really interesting example of that. I think, Dominica, you mentioned it's becoming inclusive for people with disability. But if we look at the Clubhouse model, it's by definition not inclusive, right? It's it's on an invite-only basis. Essentially, especially at the start, you'll attract only a similar type of person. And that's what companies do a lot of times as well. They attract people, and especially young companies, from their network, which means they'll start continuously attracting similar type of people from similar backgrounds, from similar universities. And again, I think tech can play an amazing role in opening up all these communities, whether it's via job boards or social platforms or whatever it is, and broadening the reach that companies have to diverse and different talent to what they're currently reaching. There's an enormous opportunity there. Thanks, Natalie. I would love to build on something if I may, Jeremy. Yeah, please go ahead. Thank you. I would love to take the opportunity to just really build on several of the points that you made, Hayley. And I think just sort of bring it all the way back because one of the things you said was mindset, right? The shift in mindset. So if we think about mindset and the ideology that underpins the mindset and kind of reverse engineer and sort of take it back to sort of where and how this discrimination became a structure or a system to begin with, it begins when we look at the structure of hierarchy and what influences ideology that pushes towards creating systems of hierarchy. And in a societal sense, especially in a societal system where we know that there are influences such as patriarchy, such as white supremacy, such as capitalism, such as imperialism, etc., the hierarchies start to become very much dependent on those dominant I guess, identities, for for lack of a better term, the privilege that those demographics rather receive as a result of that system and how that system benefits, I guess, those that have that advantage and that that privilege to begin with. And ultimately what that creates is is a, a hierarchy of social power and social power being how far up that that ladder of social power that you kind of belong based on, you know, how close you either identify with those demographics and or how well you assimilate towards the ideals of them. If we take the workplace, for example, that same ideology sort of is what birthed the idea of human being resources. 
and the idea of talent. The kind of origins of the word talent was about measurement of silver and gold. It was literally like the measurement of a resource. And so I guess that to me demonstrates that humans were looked at as a resource in the workplace sort of structure and system. And if you look at the advocacy of of human rights, sort of reducing people to resources or mechanics is literally the definition of dehumanisation. So we know that fundamentally these ideologies that sort of built the work cultures and structures of today have been built on these ideas that very much have pervaded over the years. They've become internalised, normalised and socialised structures and behaviours that have perpetuated and ultimately in in today's sort of environment end up being manifested, yes, as discrimination in all the ways we've spoken about, but then internally manifest as microaggressions that continuously perpetuate these really damaging ideas about social power and and, and status and et cetera, et cetera. And so I I raise this point because if we're going to talk about mindset, I think we really have to go back to what's created the mindset of today and really address the past and how we've gotten to where we are and really therefore look at the cultures that have been born out of those older ideas that no longer serve us and really start to challenge ourselves around the way we redesign culture that therefore doesn't discriminate, therefore is really based on real diversity, real inclusion and real accessibility. And and with that, I'm Domenico and I'm done speaking. That's great to hear that really stirring and call to action here. And you know, as we start to wrap things up here, our comes to a close. I would love to go around the table this year. Have there been, you know, we've been talking at the macro level, the regional level, the company level. And I was just wondering at a personal level, obviously, this is you know recorded and distributed later via podcast. But if anyone is open to share instances where you've observed or experienced issues with diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. For sure. (laughs) Too many times. (laughs) Yeah, being a woman, Asian, non-tech background, I have had my share of discreet discrimination. And I, 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 I call it discreet because I've been hired in a few places where in a senior leadership role. And so people within the team or teams would be very passive aggressive about the executive team's decision to hire someone like me. And so that never deterred me, just really always have motivated me to push on. It's one of the things that motivated me to give birth to to this startup that I'm building called In Silence. So there's a lot of accessibility talk to that as far as the economic, educational, and gender um, challenges are concerned. So yeah, definitely. Um, but but I've also heard so much and seen firsthand so many so many of these uh, prejudiced interactions, and and this is regardless of the educational background even as long as for women there's a certain stigma there's for the lgbtq um, community there's a different set of prejudices and i've had a brother who who was disabled and had his own fair share of disparities in in even the just the day-to-day choices that he can make but it's it's beautiful in that it's creating tangible actions across the world where now more women are founding their own companies or more more voices are being heard 
And actually more men are embracing and supporting and even helping uplift the the unheard, the voiceless, quote-unquote, and the underrepresented. As a female, I've certainly ex- experienced or been on the receiving end of gender discrimination. In Australia, I certainly didn't have this experience in Asia, but in Australia, I come from a culturally diverse background, so I've certainly experienced the likes of xenophobia. And that's my own sort of personal experiences. What I will say, um, again, to sort of highlight some of the challenges for deaf and hard of hearing people, I'll give you some of the real practical day-to-day challenges they face. If they have a suspicious transaction on their account and they need to call the bank, their options are to wait for a a family or a friend who can help them. They can use a, a chat service often there's only a limited number of sort of or a limited amount of or a limited type of inquiries you can make on those channels or you resort to email and that's like a few days back and forth so their options are to do those things or to literally go down to to the branch the singapore government released a series of hotlines to provide psychological and emotional support during covid and emergency type supports they were all hotlines they were all 1800 phone numbers which means that Again, if you were deaf or hard of hearing, the relay services you need aren't available, so you literally can't even use those services again unless if you depend on a family or friend. If you get stuck in a lift, most of the options are to make a phone call. All of the emergency services at the moment are predominantly phone call only. You can do an uh, an SMS, but you must be registered first. So if you're not registered and you find yourself in an emergency, you have to register while you're in the middle of an emergency and then be able to message. That's just not really feasible. So that is a form of serious discrimination and ultimately breach of human human rights because of that inability to, to fully participate in life in, in the way that the rest of us can. Access to communication is a human right. So uh, is, a, is a human right. So, yeah, I, I definitely say, and that's just in Singapore. Again, I mentioned earlier, 44 out of the 48 countries in Asia don't have a relay service. So that's representative of 170 million people. And that's just deaf and hard of hearing alone. That doesn't extend into the other disability. So yes, it's a pretty big issue. I just want to quickly add that. So Dominica, I'm so glad to report that that registration thing for deaf and hard of hearing people to text um, the police has has been decommissioned is 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 no longer in service because the Singapore police force just replaced that because of the whole SG secure like terrorist thing in the couple last couple of years. It's now open to the public. Seven one nine nine nine. I think you may have seen it all over like the news or in SG secure apps and things like that. Uh, they can text the police now, which is great. Which also brings to the point that the deaf and hard of hearing community struggles so much with communication and, and a lot of access to services because we are predominantly hearing world. Everything is designed for hearing people. And we always assume that everybody can hear you. When you approach a stranger, you always just speak to them. You don't assume that they may be ignoring you because they are deaf, probably because they are rude. That's the first thing that you think about. And I think accessibility is something that really needs to be pounded into everybody's head from things like this Clubhouse app, for example. It was first conceived and and, and developed without accessibility in, in mind. In terms of like uh, like 
for the people who are blind or people who are deaf, the users themselves. And I think it's been great to see the work in the community. If you look at the followed by the speakers list, Adriana down there, she's one of the founders of the 15% Club. And that 15% Club has actually worked together with people who are deaf and blind and disabled. And everybody on the Clubhouse, they come together and work together to actually influence the Clubhouse developers. The iOS engineer actually came in one of the rooms and talked about it. And, and, and you may have seen so much accessibility advances in this app in the last couple of months, the last couple of updates. Things like that need to keep going. And I think it's very important to empower the voices of deaf and disabled people all over the world and listen to them and work with them to develop everything. And I think as a sign language interpreter in Singapore, I've seen firsthand how many deaf people get rudely and discriminate, rudely like ignored and discriminated against in everywhere, right? from hospitals, writing the incorrect offensive term on their appointment sheets, right? calling them deaf and dumb when deaf people aren't dumb. And I think education is such an important thing and I think we need more people to be involved and to listen and empower these people. Haley. Okay, I wasn't sure if an interest of time <laughs> I was trying to skip it there. I guess if you ask uh, most women uh, whether they've uh, faced uh, any uh, personal stories around diversity and, and inclusion, the answer will usually be yes. I, I've definitely faced the same uh, working in mostly male-dominated areas. Some very concrete examples are, are turning up at a meeting and then being asked if the partner at the firm that I worked at had brought the secretary along. So these kind of things, I kind of brush them off and laugh about them, but obviously it's not funny at all. It all goes back to the mindset on what defines a, a person to attend that meeting and, and what does leadership look like. But at the same time, I am seeing a lot of improvement across organizations that I'm working with, especially on the gender diversity aspect. And Increasingly within the workforce, I've actually felt almost due to positive discrimination that, that I was seeing the applied, that it was almost an advantage, uh, although there were still these inherent biases that you had to deal with. As I mentioned before, what I'm seeing more and more, and especially having set up and hired a lot of tech teams in the last couple of years, is the age discrimination. And it's something that, same as disability, I think, has not been as much at the forefront, and especially in this region, which is equally important because in the tech industry, what I'm seeing a lot of times is saying, oh, they're too old. I'm saying too old for what? No, they won't be able to learn quickly. And again, these are all kind of shortcuts that we make in our mind that if someone's over a certain age, they can't learn and they can't pick up new skills. So I think there's a lot of retweaking and rejigging of our, the assumption that we're making uh, that will benefit everyone as we go. Thanks. Speaking. Thank you so much for just briefly sharing your own personal experiences. In that same spirit, you know, for myself, obviously, you know, been someone who's been drifting between countries for work. And one of the things I noticed is that obviously in one place I'm uh, in Singapore, you know, in many ways, I can be seen to be in the majority. And then I'm in the States and I'm the minority right? in different contexts out there. And so that does give me a deeper appreciation about what's going on. And I think, you know, I always, you know, had to deal with some of that context uh, as an Asian immigrant in the state, kind of uh, dealing with tough discussions and so, so forth. And it was interesting to deal with that, but I think you definitely 
as the pandemic was starting, it was definitely starting to spike quite a bit, actually. Definitely got harassed in the street a couple of times. So I think it was just an interesting uh, set of experiences for everybody because, you know, my good friend, uh, Kevin, he runs Miracle Messages and he's like, you know, anybody and everybody is you know, somebody to someone else, right? Is loved by someone else. And I think that's something to really remember no matter where we are. Thank you, Jeremy. I, li- I like what you said about remembering how everybody is, is somebody being loved by, <laughs> by somebody. It, it brings to the surface that, that we're all humans and, you know, we should start looking beyond the physical and the limitations, quote-unquote. So, and thank you for holding this room, Jeremy. Such a very relevant, important, essential conversation. And thank you, Dominica, Daniel, and Haley. Learned a lot. Yeah, I definitely want to say thank you to you, Jeremy, for hosting the room and using your platform as a way and opportunity for us to be able to speak about topics that really matter, but represent stories and challenges and voices that often aren't heard in spaces like this. So I really want to thank you for agreeing to do that and using your platform in such a a positive way. So I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much for holding this room, Jeremy. And thanks, to Dominica, to invite, uh, for inviting me to join this room and talk about things that really is important and people should talk more about. Thanks to Jean and Haley for speaking here as well. Thank you, everyone. I dropped in last minute. It was really lovely meeting everyone. And thanks to the audience for joining in the evening here. Thank you so much. And one word from me is just really gratitude, you know, gratitude for all that you shared. And uh, hopefully is a good reminder, not just for everyone here, but also for myself in the days ahead. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.